Let's open up to Ezekiel chapter 24. Ezekiel chapter 24, beginning in verse 15. And we're going to read our passage for the morning. And um, if you would, as you are turning there, whether you're looking on your, um, your phones, your apps, or whether the Bible in the pew back in front of you is what you're using, or you're using your own, or whether you um, watch on the screen uh, with us, if you would, in honor of God and his word, let's stand together. And as I read this passage to us, Ezekiel chapter 24, beginning in verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, behold, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban and put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips or eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at the evening, my wife died. And on the next morning, I did as I was commanded. And the people said to me, will you not tell us what these things mean for us that you're acting thus? Then I said to them, the word of the Lord came to me. Say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, the yearnings of your soul, and your sons and your daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword. And you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. Your turban shall be on your heads, your shoes shall be on your feet. You shall not mourn or weep, but you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. Thus shall Ezekiel be assigned to you according to all that he has done, you shall do. When this comes, then you will know that I am the Lord God. As for you, son of man, surely on the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and glory, the delight of their eyes and their soul's desire and their sons and daughters, on that day a fugitive will come to you to report to you the news. And on that day your mouth will be opened to the fugitive. And you shall speak and no longer be mute so that you will be assigned to them and they will know that I am the Lord. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. So for 23 chapters, for 23 chapters, Ezekiel has been proclaiming that there is a wrath of God to come upon Jerusalem. And he's in this refugee camp in Babylon. He was taken in the second wave of captives. Daniel goes first. And the, the three Hebrew children, they go first, and then Ezekiel goes, and there's still yet another round of captives. But these folks don't know that. They're hoping for the best, and they're asking all the prophets in their community, give us a good word, give us a good word, give us a good word, give us a word of peace. And Ezekiel is the one prophet who says, there is no peace. And I can't give you a word of peace. And Ezekiel does this, 23 chapters, it's six years of Ezekiel's life, where he's laying in the street, and he's acting out all of these things, and God has made him mute 
to the hope that is there, God only gives him words of judgment. I mean, look, I've, been, I've, been, I've had nine messages in the book of Ezekiel, and I'm fatigued. I got to tell you, it's, it is not, like, I can only imagine what it would have been like for this man in this community, in these days, in a refugee camp with people who've already experienced the pain of losing their homes, the pain of watching uh, probably pieces of their land burned, the Babylonians taking them into captivity. The Babylonians were not particularly nice people, especially when they're conquering. And so here we have today a turning point. This passage is the turning point in the book of Ezekiel. And so what I want to do today is I want to make some observations about this passage. I want to uh, reflect on this turning point in Israel's story, as well as Ezekiel's ministry, and then also to reflect on this broader question, why would God take his people through such a devastating journey? And even to ask the broader question for us today, why does God take anyone on such a devastating journey? Why, why does God allow through the hedge of his protection, why does God allow through the cup of suffering, the thorns in the flesh, the pain and the death that we encounter in our world? Why does God do that? Why would he do that? And so this morning is just a chance to reflect as we anticipate a turning point. I guess this is the point, this is what I was like, I wanted to get to the turning point in Ezekiel. I mean, this has been, in my, the preparation, I've been like, okay, we've had nine weeks of, of really just hard things and, and God talking about idolatry and unfaithfulness and, and the coming wrath. And Ezekiel has been doing this. And I've been like hoping for this idea of a turning point. When does the turn come? And the turn comes in this passage. But the hard thing about this is that the turning point is the lowest point. The turning point is the lowest point. And I think just to, as we start and as we get to this, like there is light at the end of the tunnel, but before that light is shown, it is dark. And I know that we've, we've probably all experienced this as we've lived our lives, that we've experienced pain and loss, and we've noted that as you go down, there is no other, like this, the whole idea that the, the turning point is the lowest point, by definition, the turning point is the lowest point. Like, for example, like, you ever hear somebody say, um, whenever, whenever you find something, you've lost something, and you, it's always the last place you right? And the reason why it's the last place you look is because you found the thing. It's always in the last thing about, about pain and suffering and struggle, that the turning point is always the lowest point. Because if you're going down into the pit, the point of turning out is always the bottom. And it's always felt as the bottom. No matter how objectively we don't, and we're not, we're not going, we're not going to do like, okay, well, Job was the worst, and then like so-and-so is, is a little bit not so bad, and then we, all, we don't grade our suffering because we accept a low point. And this morning, just as we walk through this and we ask the question, like, what is this like? Why does God do this? And this is an age-old question. It's an enduring question. I probably won't say anything new to you, 
but we still come today to look at God's word and to find comfort here, even in the lowest point. Are you guys with me? So hang on. I mean, hang on. You're like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for Christmas. I'm ready for Thanksgiving. And trust me, I'm ready for Thanksgiving. And, but that's going to be one of the things that as we prepare for Thanksgiving, one of the things I want to do today is simply to make mention over these last couple years of just the things that we have lost. The things that maybe we still long for that we do not have. The things that maybe we are still at a low point, waiting to come out. And so with this passage, we want to affirm that, yes, God has, that God is doing something and there is a low point, but that God is at work. So let's look at 2416. And the first point that we've, already, that we've mentioned is the turning point is the lowest point. Look at 20, 2416. Son of man, behold, I'm about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Now that phrase, delight of your eyes, it occurs three times in this passage. And we find that for Ezekiel, for Ezekiel, the delight of his eyes means his wife. 24.18, so I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening, my wife died. And the next morning I did as I was commanded. Now, Ezekiel 24, 18, I just have to say, is, <laughs> is just a gut-wrenching verse. I mean, I don't know any other way to read that verse in the Bible other than it is <sighs> devastating. Ezekiel has already embodied the punishment of the nation. He's laid on his side in the street. He's built a scale model of Jerusalem and laid siege to it. He's put the pan between him and the city. He has, uh, he, he's gone out with the baggage of exile. Like he's, he's enacted all these things. He's actually embodied the message. Ezekiel is a prophet who has done street theater essentially. And that he has, he's cooked food. He was commanded to cook food over human poop, right? And God says, okay, you can do it over cow poop instead, right? So like, he's done this, you can imagine after six years of embodying this message, eating ration food, warning, and the thing is for Ezekiel, warning and being ignored, that this is the one thing over these 23 chapters is, we would think that the nation of Israel is like, Ezekiel, you're right, but, they're so, but we also have these chapters about false prophets, and that there's many people among them that are saying, peace, peace, peace. And to be the prophet of doom, like to be the prophet of doom, when there's all these other prophets around saying, oh, don't listen to him, peace. But Ezekiel being the, the prophet of God that is, that is really the watchman, he's standing in the gap, he's, he's the one that is doing this. And now he's going to embody the grief that is going to come over the nation and the refugee camp that he's in, in Babylon. And he's told, he's told a couple things. He's told this. And I want to, this can sound a little weird to our ears. Look, well, it, the whole thing right now already sounds, you're like, Pastor Craig, you're assuming that it doesn't sound weird to our ears right now. Like, this is already tough. It's already difficult. But this is going to sound a little bit, a little strange. In 2416, son of man, I'm about to take the delight of your eyes away from you. 
Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall tears run down. It says, sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban on, put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover up your lips, nor eat the bread of men. Now, this idea that Ezekiel is going to lose his wife. Whatever it is that happens that the Lord is going to say, like, this, you're going to lose the delight of your eyes, and I don't want you to mourn. Okay, now, just that might sound a little inhuman, okay, that God would tell Ezekiel to do this. But what, it, it's important to note that God is not saying that Ezekiel cannot grieve. He will grieve. The, the thing is, what he wants Ezekiel to do, and, and mourning, see, when he talks about, there's a difference between grief and mourning in the Hebrew, okay? Grief is what you feel on the inside, and God says, you're going to grieve, you're going to sigh, okay? I want you to sigh, but I don't want you to do it aloud. I don't want you to mourn. And the idea of that is that mourning in the ancient world, especially in the Jewish ancient world, mourning would involve um, very specific ceremonies that you would, you would bring. There were certain people in the community that would come in and on your behalf would wail out loud for your family. And that there would be people that would, that would do certain ceremonies, that people would participate as a community in mourning together, and it would be very out loud, be very public. Ezekiel would have been expected to, to wear certain clothes when you, when you go into mourning, that you would take your shoes off your feet, you would, you would, let your, you would, take, you would, you would put sackcloth and ashes on, right? And what God is saying is that what I, I don't want you to do that. And there's going to be a reason why God doesn't want him to do that. But all this to say that God tells Ezekiel to forego these formalities even as he says, sigh, grieve, do it internally, but don't change your clothes, don't employ the weepers, and don't have all the meals delivered, okay? And the, the idea be, behind all this is that this is going to be what Ezekiel is going to embody here, is he's going to embody what is going to happen to this community that has been exiled and to the nation of Israel as a whole. So look at 2419. They ask, um, hey, what are, like everybody sees what Ezekiel, by, by the way, I would also say this. Remember what we said early in the book, Ezekiel was trained as a priest, but God calls him to be a prophet. And actually the vision of the Lord coming to him is on, is on his birthday, the day he's supposed to be installed as a priest in Jerusalem. That's chapter one. And, and it's this change that you're not going to be a priest, but you're going to be a prophet. One of the things in the book of Leviticus is there were times when priests were in active duty, they were not allowed to mourn because it would make them ritually unclean. I don't know if you knew this. That for some, some Jews, those who were priests, they couldn't make themselves ritually unclean in mourning because they still needed to provide the service to the people in the temple. And so this idea of not mourning, we might think, this sounds inhuman. In some ways, it, 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 he, in other words, God is saying, remember when you were trained as a priest? I want you to do that right now. Because what you're doing is you're doing something for the people. And so as much as, I, as much as I read this and I'm like, oh my gosh, if God were to say, look, you know, I'm just going to take your wife and you're not going to be able to grieve. I'm going to take your spouse and you're not going to be able to grieve. Like, for Ezekiel, this is partially a hearkening back to his time. It's a reminder to him, Ezekiel, you are, 
you are serving the people on my half. This, like you, in Romans 12, 1, like um, uh, to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual service of worship. For Ezekiel, this is your spiritual service of worship. This is your priestly service. And he does this because this is going to be something that's going to happen to the community. 24-19. So the people said to me, uh, tell us what these things mean for us. Why are you acting this way? 24-20. Then I said to them, the, the word of the Lord came to me. Say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, the delight of your eyes. I'm going to take away the delight of your eyes, Israel, and the yearning of your soul, your sons and daughters whom you left behind, and you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips nor eat the bread of men. Your turban shall be on your heads. No sa- In other words, he says... Um, the people, to, to the people that Jerusalem and the temple is going to fall, and you will not be allowed to mourn. And I, I think this idea, when Jerusalem and the temple fall, you already have, so the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom goes, the southern kingdom goes, and they come out with Daniel, and then Ezekiel, and then this third phase is going to be, it's going to show that just utter destruction. There's really going to be no one left behind. The city, the city of God is going to be burnt and scraped to its foundation. And what that means is that when five months later, when these refugees, this, this last wave of refugees comes into Babylon, what God is saying is this. You won't be able to employ mourners on your behalf. You're going to hear all these stories about people who have died. And you're not going to be able to find anyone who is not themselves mourning. You're going to go and look for the mourners that you're going to, like, come to my house so you can weep with me. And they're going to say, we can't come. We've lost people ourselves. Like the people who bring food. Well, I'm mourning, can you help me with this? No, I can't because we've lost people ourselves. It would be as if, it would be as if there was such a catastrophe in our community that there was no mortuary had time for a service because all of the workers there all lost somebody. There were no pastors to be found to do the memorial service because everybody had lost something. And that is what God is saying here. It, this is going to be a catastrophe of such a proportion that all just the conventions, the, the, the systems of mourning are going to shut down because it's going to be so pervasive. Even they will be grieving. The entire structure of societal systems of mourning is just going to be overwhelmed. I think to some degree, um, during... Um, during this pandemic, we experienced some of that, did we not? That we, we heard of, like, um, in New York City, that there were so many people that had, that had passed that they ran out of room in the, in the mortuaries. Or to the idea that even we might have known somebody who passed away during that time, but they couldn't have a memorial service. Like, that's the sort of thing that even in the grief, even in the grief, there was no way to participate in the corporate activity of mourning. And in some ways, we've experienced that 
as we've gone through places parts of our own lives and not been able to be surrounded by community in the way that we have wanted to or we've traditionally had. Like even the idea of bringing food over to someone's house, like there have been restrictions on that. Gathering in our sanctuary or gathering outside, like yesterday we had a, a memorial service for a, 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 a woman who passed away from another church. And when we heard about it, we were like, and they, they approached us about using our, our courtyard, we were like, of course, because during this time, we've had examples, even in our own congregation, of people who passed away that we've not been able to have a memorial service for. And so in many ways, we, we do experience that. We are in a, in a bit of a time where that still goes on, that's still going on. But for Ezekiel, Ezekiel, you're going to embody this for these people because when this happens, it's going to be so catastrophic. You're not going to be able to find all the conventional mourners that you that would fulfill those roles. And the delight of the eyes is Jerusalem. And God says, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to profane my sanctuary. And he calls, it, he calls it a few things. He calls it the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, the city of Jerusalem, the temple, the yearning of your soul, and then he says, this, your sons and daughters whom you left behind, they're going to fall by the sword. So those who did not come out with you, they are also going to experience this. And Ezekiel's actions at the death of his wife is to function as a message of the coming catastrophe. And this, this thing about the coming catastrophe is, the, Ezekiel has been preaching this, but they had not, they had heard it, but they had not believed it. Like, one of the things about the turning point, why, Ezekiel's mouth is going to be open, and his mutinous, the mutinous is not necessarily that he can't say anything, but he can't say anything hopeful. God has made him mute about hope. But what's going to happen is, once this last news comes in, the, 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 the last wave of refugees and the last wave of people who've lost everything come in, he will be vindicated in his message. God will be vindicated in his message. They will finally believe him. And at that point, Ezekiel's going to be able to say, all right, we've got to find hope now. We've got to find hope. In 23.17, it says that, or, I'm sorry, 23.27, on that day, your mouth will come. So 26, on that day, a fugitive will come to you and report to you the news. On that day, your mouth will be open to the fugitive, and you will, no, you will speak and no longer be mute, so you will be assigned to them, and they will know that I am the Lord. So in, back in 326, Ezekiel is made mute. He cannot talk. And as I said, it's not because, it's not because he, he doesn't, like, he says a lot of things in the book. There's 23 chapters, okay? And they're, they're all words. He, so he says some things, but what God mutes him to, what he puts the mute button on Ezekiel is, there's no hope. And for 23 chapters, Ezekiel is like, look, Jerusalem's going to fall. And they're like, no, peace, peace. And he's like, dude, you have another message for us. And, he, and, and God says, Ezekiel, you don't have another message. You don't get to say anything else. All you can say is, repent from your idolatry. Well, don't you have another message for us? No, I don't. God has not enabled me to give any other message of comfort or hope. But on the day that the fugitive will come, and report the news. That will be the day of opening the mouth. And so in chapter 24, 
at the beginning of chapter 24, um, this, the, the book begins in, in 593 B.C., okay? Um, and um, what we find is that the, the passage, the passage begins in, um, in 587, Ezekiel 24, 1, in the ninth year of the tenth month on the tenth day of the month, okay? All that means is that that's six years after the beginning of the book, but, and we're in chapter 24. The fugitive, the, the, the refugee comes in chapter 33. We're in chapter 24. The fugitive will come in chapter 33. That will be five months later. So Ezekiel, Ezekiel is actually giving, that God is giving this word to Ezekiel on the day that the Babylonians begin the siege. Historically, it's actually one of the points in the book of Ezekiel that gives the historical veracity to the book of Ezekiel. Like that's a date that's noted in history that that's the day that the Babylonians laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. They probably do it for about a month. They, 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 they lay it bare, and then the refugees come over a four-month travel to Babylon. Four months. We estimate that because when Ezra goes back, it takes about four months for him to travel back with all the, in their caravan. Four months. And on that day, so he's giving this message, the death of his wife, he gives this message, Four months later is when the refugee, the fugitive, comes and says, Jerusalem has fallen. And then Ezekiel says, all right, it's time to start giving some hope. Because you all know, like, I don't have to say it's coming, it has come. And the pain has come to the community, the pain has landed in our community, we've been overwhelmed by this catastrophe, and now God says, now it's time to rebuild, it's time to give hope. And this is where we're going to pick it up in the new year. <laughs> You're like, praise the Lord. We're actually, we're not going to do Ezekiel over Christmas, okay? We'll actually do Christmas over Christmas, so we have Thanksgiving next week, okay? You're like, lift up your hearts, everybody, okay? Um, Thanksgiving next week, we'll have open sharing next week, as we traditionally do the Sunday after Thanksgiving, a chance to give thanks, okay? And then we'll, we'll do Advent, but as we pick up the new year, we're going to hear I mean, we're really going to hear the gospel according to Ezekiel. The good news of renewal. But before we get to the good news, we go to the bottom. Rock bottom. The turning point in the story is the lowest point. It's rock bottom. And this is where I want to just reflect a little bit. I want to reflect on this idea about what do we do, what do we do in our theology and in our spirituality and in our lives about rock bottom? What do we do with a low point in our lives? And there have been a lot of, there have been a lot of Christian theologians and people, uh, spiritual teachers in the Christian tradition that have talked about this low point, St. John of the Cross, the dark night of the soul, Soren Kierkegaard talked about fear and trembling, uh, and, uh, and, and even, um, the, you know, Jesus talks about this, the cup of suffering. Paul talks about the thorn in the flesh. This book of Psalms is full of low points, the pit, the grave, Sheol. What do we do? How do we explain why we go to a low point in our lives? And I would just say this. I would say this, that I, I want to make this clear. There are some in, in Christian, there's some Christian theologians, there's some traditions that simply talk about, look, once you put your faith in Jesus, it's always better and better and better and better and better every day. And if it isn't, it's, it should be. 
And the only reason you go down is because of your backsliding. Okay, all right. There are a number of reasons why you go, why you go down. And I, we've talked about this when we talked about the Psalms, that the Christian life is really this, this movement between orientation, being oriented before God, knowing who God is, experiencing the blessing of God, the wind at your back, everything is going great. It's, it, there's always this sense of there's, there's, there's orientation, the garden where everything is lush and things are growing and things are alive. The springtime, right? But there's also in the spiritual life, there's also in the Christian life, there's also in the life of following Jesus, the desert. There is a place of winter. There's a place of despair. There is a place of the pit. It's like, in, this, in spirit, it, when we look at the, the rich tradition that we come from in the Jewish tradition, as well as in the New Testament, we do find that orientation is true in the Christian life, but also that we experience disorientation. And there are really three reasons why we go into disorientation, okay? Three reasons why we go into disorientation, or we go into the desert, or we go into the pit. There's three reasons why we go in that direction. And the first is this, true, sometimes we're taken to the low point by our own decisions. Our own hand, our own decisions have natural consequences. And for, for making bad decisions for yourself, it's very difficult to blame anyone else why you might reap what you have sown in that way. I brought this on myself, I was either careless, I was angry, I was violent, I was addicted. My selfishness has brought me to this place. And we certainly see that in this passage, like why is Jerusalem falling? And if you've been keeping score at home, you could tell me, what would be one of the reasons why Jerusalem is falling? idolatry, the idolatry of the people. Yahweh says, I will be your God, you will be my people, but they chose idols instead of God. So in some ways, this is on them. They are making this decision. But that's not the end of this, is it? The low point can sometimes be not, all, not at our own hand, like we can go into disorientation because of our own decisions, our own hand, but we can also go into disorientation because of the decisions of other people about us. The Psalms are full of talk about enemies. Like, as, as, uh, as Eugene Peterson says, that uh, God is the main subject of the Psalms, but enemies are a close second. Okay? And so this idea that someone else has wronged you, they were careless, they were angry, they were violent, they were addicted, they were selfish. And their selfishness has now brought me to this place where I'm in the wreckage. I'm in disorientation. I am in the desert. And so the movement, the movement from being oriented, the highs, to the lows and being disoriented, being in the, from the garden to the desert, can sometimes be of your own choosing and your own decisions, but it can also be because of the decisions of others. And perhaps you've experienced that, that there's been relational strife, somebody has violated you, somebody has wronged you, and it, it truly takes you to a place of asking hard questions of God. And that's not to be discounted, that has to be, that has to be something that's part of our theology and being made aware of that. Not every movement into disorientation or the desert is backsliding, 
You got to read the Psalms. Read the Psalms. All right. But then there's another hard one, okay? I'm going to take a deep breath on this one, okay? Sometimes we're taken into disorientation because of our own decisions by our own hand. Sometimes we're taken into, di- into disorientation because of someone else's decisions. But sometimes we're taken to the low point by the hand of God. And there is no explanation. God has done it. God has laid siege. And even if we're we're not comfortable with this language that God has done this, Ezekiel seems comfortable with this language. Like, why why is Jerusalem destroyed? The idolatry of the people. The Babylonians do it. But God is laying siege to them. Like, God is doing it. We oftentimes talk about, hey, maybe God is allowing this to happen, but Ezekiel is saying God is not just allowing it, God is doing it. And this is, this, <laughs> this is one of the most difficult to preach. I think, I think sometimes in, in, in the Christian tradition, this can be stated very glibly and insensitively. That anytime someone is in the pit, God is doing something to you. God is doing this to you. And one of the things that we need to note is that based on our faith in Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Like, God does not have a wrath to pour out on his people because Jesus has absorbed that wrath. But so sometimes we we can just kind of glibly state God is doing this. And you see like a natural disaster or something like that. And you'll hear people say, well, God is doing this. God is punishing and God is... And... It's, it's hard, like, I don't know, I, I don't feel like stepping up and saying, yeah, God is doing this. I'm like, well, hurricanes happen. I mean, it's bad, right? Or like the pandemic, like, what's happening? Is, is, this, is this judgment of God? I remember when this happened with, with the AIDS epidemic, and it was, people were talking about, this is God's judgment on the, on the gay community, and I was like, ah, I don't, like, I don't think that that's necessarily the point, that's what's happening here. And I do think that there is, we have to be careful about how we put this. The thing is, Ezekiel, Ezekiel says this. God is doing this. We, we like to think that, you know, pain and evil are separated from God. And that might, that might be a good influence. Like, we, we ought to lean into that, I think. But in this case, there are times where God does take us to a low point. There are times in our lives where God will remove the delight of our eyes. God will remove the pride of your power. God will remove the yearning of your soul. He will allow pain. I think predominantly, I, bl- I, I would say that God hedges people in, that he provides the breath in your lungs, he provides the, the good things in your life, and he provides overwhelmingly more good. But there are times where he lets through the hedge the cup of suffering, the thorn in the flesh, or grief that is just unbearable and unthinkable. We can go to the low point by our own hand, 
we can go by the hand of other people or God can do it or God can eventually say like he does to Joseph that Joseph remember the story of Joseph his brothers sell him into slavery he goes into Egypt he's in prison but he raises to a position of power and his brothers come back and he wrestles with what do I do with these guys but he eventually says what you intended for evil God intended for good and he comes to a point but not after not after a long journey and that's that's very difficult to glibly tack on like a period at the end of a sentence that really demands an exclamation point or an ellipsis at least right? So with that said, why is God doing this? Let me see if I can make some observation about why God would do this in this passage and even in our own lives. And if you'll permit me to at least reflect a little bit on that, because look, I don't, I don't walk into this lightly, because as I walk and I look around you all have experienced profound loss in your lives. And I'm not make, I don't want to make light of that. I don't want to glibly stand up here and say, well, God did that for all things work together for good, and let's just move on from it. That's not the way this works. We grieve together. We respect the suffering. We reflect in the midst of our suffering. So what I offer out of Ezekiel is this. There are two lines that occur over and over and over again in the book of Ezekiel. Two lines that occur over and over and over again in the book of Ezekiel that I think give a sense about why does God do this? In the midst of all the idolatry, the marching armies, the sieges, the infidelity, the calls for repentance, ultimately the pain and the grief, why does God do this? 26 times in the book of Ezekiel, there's this one phrase, they will know that I am the Lord. They will know that I am the Lord. Oftentimes this phrase occurs in judgment passages. So like in, seven, nine, in chapter 7 and verse 9, it says this, My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord. But the phrase also occurs in the second half of the book, where Ezekiel, after the turning point, like in chapter 20, Ezekiel says, or God says to Ezekiel, um, when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds, then you will know that I am the Lord. Why does God do anything? Why does he bring pain? Why does he bring good? Why does he bring, why is there mourning? Why is there comfort? Why anything? And one of the lines, one of the things in Ezekiel's understanding of God, it is because of this. So that you will know that our God is Yahweh, that I am the Lord. And this idea that what God is about one of the things that we want to, to recognize is that God wants to make himself known. But we live in a world of distraction, right? We live in a world of distraction. And there are times where God will say, that distraction, I'm going to peel it off. No matter how much you enjoy that distraction, no matter how much that distraction means something to you, I'm going to take it and I'm going to peel it off. Why? Because you're leaning on that more than you're leaning on me. And I'm going to say, 
I want you to know that I am the Lord. You're my people. I'm your God. I'm going to peel this off because I want you to know that I am the Lord. And there are times, there are times you might have experienced it in your life and as you look back, you're like, that thing that God removed, that friendship that God removed, that ability that God removed, that talent that seems unrealized, that one thing that, I, that, never, that wasn't allowed to grow, that God removed. And I don't know why, but that one thing, the fact that that's not there has made me lean on the Lord all the more. And I know that he is the Lord. And God would say that you would know that I am the Lord. There's one more phrase that occurs. It's not as often as you will know that I am the Lord, but I think it, it, it plays in. And it's simply this. One of the other recurring phrases in the book of Ezekiel is, for the sake of my name. Why does God, why does God take us into a low point so that they will know that I am the Lord, but also for the sake of my name? In Ezekiel 36, 22, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to act, but for the sake of my name. And there's something, there is a, there's a very subtle thing because when we come to faith in Jesus, it is about, there's life transformation and maybe your life was going in the wrong direction, now it's going in the right direction. You're experiencing the love and protection and joy of the Lord. There's joy in salvation and sometimes we think that salvation was there so that I can have joy. And the truth is, that salvation is there for the sake of his name. Not for our name. I mean, this is one of those things, this is like every once in a while we gotta come back down and say, Look, this is not about me. This isn't about me. This is about about God in love with humanity. And I don't know how many times Ezekiel had to kind of back off and say, okay, this is not for the sake of my name. This is for the sake of the name of the Lord. I mean, I can't even imagine the amount of times over six years that Ezekiel has to say, This is not about me. This is about the Lord. This is not about me. This is about the Lord. And there are times, look, there are times where, yes, God is going to reach down and say, I want to comfort you. I want to lead you out of your pit. And there are other times where God says, I know you want out, but you got to go through. I'll meet you on the other side, but for the sake of my name, you got to go through. I think of the Apostle Paul who prays, you know, he's got this thorn in the flesh and he's all, take this away, take this away. And he prays that it would be taken away and God says, "Um, no. Your weakness, in your weakness is where I'm made, where I'm strong. And so you got to keep the thorn. I mean, here's the other example, obviously, the example of Jesus who prays, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. Take this cup from me and God says no for the sake of my name I want you to drink the cup 
And we, we recognize that there's no one else who's going to drink the cup that Jesus drank. It, that, that is the, the, the cup of suffering that makes a way for us to go before God. But there might be, a, there might be something that you are asked to endure by the Lord. It doesn't make him bad. It makes him glorious. And you might think, look, that, that's glib. No, it's not. It is his glory. It's his glory. If you have faith in Jesus, it, your faith in Jesus is because you believe that there is a God who sent Jesus into, and this world is about God's glory, not about my glory. Not about my glory. Not about your glory either. It's not about us. It's for the sake of his name. And this is not an easy sermon to preach because, again, I look around and I see the things that people are going through, the things that people have endured in their lives, the loss of spouses, the loss of loved ones, the loss of health, and we have to recognize those are real things, but at the same time, we are here because of the, for the sake of his name. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, they say, teach us to pray, teach us to pray, and Jesus says, when you pray, say this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your name be made holy. Let your name be set apart for the sake of your name. When the Apostle Paul encounters Jesus on the, on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And later, when Ananias is told, restore his sight, restore his sight, and Ananias is like, I don't want to do that. That guy, he's trouble. And God says, he needs to know how much he's going to suffer for the sake of my name. It's the only time in the New Testament where that phraseology occurs. And you got to think that for, in some way that, that, that God is telling, hey, like, like, like Isaiah, like Ezekiel, Paul is going to suffer for the sake of my name. And maybe you find yourself in a place where, gosh, I don't know what to do with what I'm dealing with. I don't know. And that's why we have community. That's also why we have, so you got to talk to somebody about this, but you also have to talk to God about this. One of the things we have to ask is, what is the way forward if we're going to be in the pit? What, what is the way forward if we're going to be in disorientation? What's the way forward if, if God is going to bring this sort of discipline? What if, if God is going to peel this off, what do we do? And what we see, what faithfulness looks like in a season like that, we find that in the Psalms, and that is this. Whatever season of life we're in, things are going well, if things are going poorly, what the Psalms teach us is we take our life and we put it to speech before God. We speak it out to Him. We don't talk behind His back. God's doing this to me. You say, God, why are you doing this to me? You got to talk to Him. You got to address Him. He's the one person who can do something about it. You have to address them. I think as we look in our society and people are deconstructing their faith, they're like, I gave church a chance. And you're like, did you really, like, you read Acts chapter 2? Like, you gave that a chance? Like, you shared all things in common? Like, you, you, you did all that? And you start hearing, like, well, God isn't doing, God doesn't do this, God doesn't do this. Like, have you told him that? Why don't you tell him that? That's what the Psalms, like, read the Psalms. They said a lot worse things about God. They just said it to his face because they knew that was the path forward in faithfulness when you are in the pit you got to address god you got to ask you got to tell god what you're feeling and i would just say this the path 
forward of faithfulness for the nation for Ezekiel is simply to address God. God, what are you doing? It's not a sin to ask how long. It's not a sin to ask why. It's not a sin to be angry and to put that to God. It is a sin to talk bad about God behind his back. That's called blasphemy. But for some reason, God seems to think, it's better if you just address me with it. And when we read in the Psalms, that's exactly the path of faithfulness that we see in the nation of Israel time after time after time. Jesus was not theologically incorrect for asking God to take something away that God would not take away. You are not theologically incorrect with pleading with God about something that might not ever happen. But that is the one place that needs to be addressed. Job, Job. I mean, doesn't he come to mind? Job, God takes, God takes all his possessions away. And he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return right? And this is unjust, like this is the, the suffering of the righteous. Then his, his kids are wiped out, and even his wife says, hey, look, just curse God and die, and he says, should we receive the good from God and not the evil? And then buried in, buried in one of Job's speeches, in, in Job chapter 13, he says this, though he slay me, I will still hope in him. <laughs> like, that's someone who understands it's not for me, it's for him. There's something going on that's beyond me. Gosh, and, and this passage, as gut-wrenching as this is, Ezekiel does show us a path of saying, not to me, not to us, but to you be the glory. And I, I want to invite us, like, we're, look, Thanksgiving is coming. Thank the Lord Thanksgiving is coming right? I got to get, I got to, I got to move on, <laughs> right? But sometimes we can't move on. We've got to do this. And so I think one of the things just, I, I want to kind of lead us, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And I just want us to have a, a couple of moments of just reflection as we go into this Thanksgiving season to just identify some things that maybe you're just grieving right now. So let's just, let's just bow our heads and let's just reflect and just take a second. Like, is there something that you are, that you're angry about? Let's just start with that. Is there something that you're angry about right now? I just want you to, I want you to tell God that you're angry about it. Address him. Is there something that you feel like has been taken away from you over this last year and a half in the pandemic? Something that you miss. Maybe it's a routine. Maybe it's a thing. Maybe it's a meeting. Maybe it's a person. And you want it. You want it back. Tell God that. Maybe there's somebody that you are just, oh man, you are upset with. Uh, you're angry with them, a rival, an enemy, 
Just tell God. Tell God that. Anything that you're missing, something that you want but don't have, something that was taken from you and you can't get back. Whatever it is, whatever's coming to mind, just address God with that. Father, there are needs and emotions and wants that are in this room, Father, that they are, uh, they are difficult, but we bring them to you. And Father, we, we recognize that if there is anyone here that is in the pit, in the bottom, that you would minister to them, whether it's to give them assurance or to give them just a clear understanding of maybe why they are where they are or just giving, give, giving them new endurance in prayer to you. Would you provide that? And Father, we also just right now in our hearts, we want to embody 1 Thessalonians 5.18 that says, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And so just quietly in your heart, just begin this week of thanksgiving now. Let, let this be the turning point. Let this be the turning point from grief and anger to now focusing on giving thanks. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Thank you for family. Thank you for friends. Thank you for this body of people. Whatever's on your heart, just give thanks right now to him in your heart, quietly. Just begin this week of thanksgiving. Begin it. Father, would you begin to well up within us a thanksgiving, a heart of thanksgiving for the things that you've given, even wherever we are, whether oriented or disoriented, begin this week of thanksgiving so that we can give thanks in all circumstances. Father, thank you. This is about you. Not to us, but to you be the glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.